This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You probably don't realize this, but doing your laundry leads to more plastic in the ocean. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Washing clothes is responsible for about 35% of plastic pollution in the world's oceans. Those synthetic fibers that make our clothes stretchy, stain-resistant, and breathable are made from plastic. And when they're washed, bits of plastic shed and enter our waterways. Now, before you freak out, there are things that can be done to solve the problem. The focus is often on individual action, but environmental advocates say solutions include shifting blame and responsibility away from consumers and putting it on manufacturers. To find out more, we're talking with Andrea Densham, Senior Strategic Advisor with Alliance for the Great Lakes. Also with us is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. Now, Karen, we mentioned 35% of global pollution comes from textiles. That's huge. Yeah, this is big. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to recognize, it's also everywhere. So you mentioned, you know, foods, different kinds of things. It's in the deep sea. It's in ice. It is all over. Uh, but it's also interesting to look at what we're talking about. We're talking about microplastics. Yeah. We're talking about those little pieces that are, as, as Noah says, kind of the size of a sesame seed or smaller. These are itty-bitty. Often you can't see them. Um, and they are coming from a variety of sources, a, What's defined as kind of a primary source, meaning they enter our world as super teeny, Mm -hmm. a lot of that is driven by exactly what you're saying. It's clothing. It's fabric. It's about 35% of it. Are there other single contributors at this scale? Yeah, if you're looking at those, again, those microplastics that are coming into our water systems and our environment, interestingly, the one listed right after is erosion from tires. Ah, interesting. So, Andrea, do we have a sense then of how much of these microplastics are in the Great Lakes? Yep. You know, we have, we'd love to have better data, and that is always the case. And and the the size of it is something that I think is really important for me as I'm about to talk about how much we guess to think about how small these pieces are, right? We're talking about less than five millimeters in size makes something micro. Micro is just the size. We also talk about nano, right? Right. Super small. It is estimated by the United States Geological Survey that there are 1,200,000 particles per square mile in the Great Lakes. So it sounds we, like a lot. It is a lot. It is an absolutely astonishing a lot. And, and we're also guesstimating right now that there's something like 6.5 million metric tons globally in our oceans, right? And so again, we're talking, let's remember what we're talking about at the beginning. That's five millimeters to 6.5 metric tons. And what's most important with that last stat is that that has increased by more than 50% in just the last 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Walk us through how this happens, Karen. So you, you wash your clothes. Then what? How, do, how does it end up in our lakes and oceans? So when we're talking about the fabrics part, you wash your clothes. And uh, 
little pieces break off in the wash from the mm-hmm. you know, from the fact that it, they're banging around in there, the chemicals, the heat. But little pieces are are using we use the word shedding. So these little itty bitty pieces are coming off. So then they're in the water that's in your washing machine, and then they go where your wastewater goes. So in our case, you know, they go into the Chicago region, they go to MWRD, and then they go down and they end up in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's part of how what happens here ends up in oceans. Um, some of this also ends up in the air. You know, if you're out near a lake or a stream, outside of other regions, uh, it goes wherever you go. But the washing, it's follow the wastewater. Oh, my gosh. So is it a problem of the, the fibers in, in the clothes or, or how they're washed, just so we're clear? I think it starts with the question of the fibers. We're at the point now where 60% of all textiles have synthetics in them. So you really can't get away from it if you're looking at the clothing that you're wearing. Uh, It's very, very difficult. And there are all sorts of challenges with how clothes are made. So certainly there's a question of how you wash it. uh, And there's things that can be done there in terms of actually the frequency of washing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really, it's everywhere. And so the question is, how do we handle it when it's everywhere? You've got to ask the question of how it got there, where it goes. And then there are roles that we can play. Absolutely, and washing differently, uh, washing with full a full cycle with all the water, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's in there. Interesting. So, can water treatment facilities stop these microplastics from getting out into the lakes and oceans, Andrea? We need to help our our the MWRD and and so by the way, MWRD, our water uh, reclamation district here right. in the Chicagoland area, second largest in the country, second only to LA. We do need to help support them in identifying new technology. Uh, you know, on the solution side, cold water and and line drying your clothes, those are two amazing solutions. Uh, actually, the drying side is really, really important to this, um, and, and it re- can make a really substantial difference oh, really? to line dry versus uh, dry your clothes in your dryer. Mm-hmm. Um, not only does it reduce energy and actually improves the life of your uh, fabric, but um, substantively reduces the amount of the microfibers in our air. And um, we can do things to our own washers and dryers. We can put filtration on them. In fact, we can require, as France has done, manufacturers to put filtration in the washer themselves, Okay, uh, which can make a really substantial difference. And then that can help us with MWRD, right? So the more we can reduce it in our homes the more then we can help MWRD. But we are going to need to provide them resources and and really uh, demand that there be technological advances in order to find some solutions to this. Yeah, and as, as we talk more about some of the individual things that we can do, how do our attitudes, Karen, toward buying and caring for clothes, talk more about how that contributes to the problem. Absolutely. And uh, we have to start with the fact that it's it's nice to have a cozy fleece or those jeans that have a little extra stretch. You know, without a doubt, that's a part of the story. Uh, but we're also looking at a place where global production of textiles has doubled in the last 20 years. So there's an amount question that's just really, really critical. Uh, and then we have to think about that as we're looking at the clothing part. And then there's the when you have a piece of clothing, um, what can you do with it to extend its life and then to clean it in a less impactful way? It's really interesting to look at some of the questions now around fleece because it's 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 very bumpy. Like fleece is one of those fabrics where a lot breaks off in the system, mm-hmm. different than a smoother fabric. So there are now some recommendations to spot clean fleeces if you can. Interesting. So we know, as, as we talked about, that these microplastics, they harm aquatic and human life. Mm-hmm. So... I want to dig into, first of all, aquatic life, right? How is it affected by the presence of the plastics? Help us understand that. Yeah, it's it's really actually quite devastating, um, both for aquatic life being fish as well as seabirds. 
Uh, and think of our dear friends, Moni, uh, the wonderful little uh, beautiful seabird. Uh, we now it sounds like there might be a sibling uh, at Montrose Harbor this year, right. which is fantastic. The seabirds and the fish are consuming the microfibers and the microplastics. It's filling them up. They think they're full. Um, and then they uh, often starve. We're also finding, because they're so small, especially nano, we're finding in blood um, uh, and some of the micro we're finding in the actual tissue of the fish and the birds. Uh, the biggest challenge is that if it's in their stomachs, it makes them feel full. There's also concern because, remember, what plastic is is petroleum plus petrochemicals. Some of those really awful petrochemicals we just saw spill in Ohio those petrochemicals are really dangerous and are known to have impacts on estrogen receptors. And there's a substantial concern right now in aquatic life, both, again, both birds and fish, that is having an impact on reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, and the wow. reason why I bring, out, uh, bring up the lo- lovely little um, bird in Montrose Harbor is that's an endangered species. And so we really care about reproduction, uh, especially for the, many of those creatures that are on the endangered and threatened species list. You know, and scientists, Karen, they're, they're estimating that we all ingest about a credit card size worth of microplastics every week. They're still determining the exact harms of this, but do, do we know that many, well, we already know many plastics contain endocrine disrupting chemicals, but can you just explain what those are and just the, the harms that they cause, EDCs? Yeah, that's one of the really important questions that we're all looking at with the growth of plastics and particularly with that horrible image you just shared about eating a credit card. Um, Hey, sorry, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) But as we think about uh, the challenges of endocrine disruptors, first of all, you start with what's the endocrine system. So those are all, you know, the glands and the hormones uh, used in the body. And it it is related to the production of estrogen and testosterone, people often think about, but also things like insulin or adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And so the questions and uh, the challenges, the risks, and the many unknowns on some of this are how that disrupts uh, the actual human system. And so those are some of the questions that we have broadly about plastics. There's a lot of data about different parts of it. And then when you get specific into what is it about this amount that we're ingesting, um, there's a lot of unknowns in here. Andrea, how does this affect the people who um, work in the factories producing these materials or the, the folks who live nearby? Absolutely. Plastic manufacturing exposes workers and residents in fence line communities to multiple toxic chemicals. Um, And and it can have really serious impacts uh, from cancer to asthma. Um, And I was just speaking with, I was just in Springfield yesterday, speaking with an elected official uh, who lives near some of the the factories in our state. And she was expressing that she can smell and feel in her chest when she walks near to some of the factories creating some of these chemicals. It is a significant concern. We, in fact... Um, polystyrene, which we're not talking about today, but is associated with some of the chemicals. We've seen an up to one in five risk, increased risk of uh, mortality from cancer and with, with working in and living near those kind of factories. It's a, it's a substantial concern. Just last month in the Journal of um, Public Health was a global, uh, one of the first global reports on public health we have much, much we need to learn, and it needs to be more of an investment. Mm-hmm. But this journal report notes what we already know today and is calling on the U.N. and the United States to invest more resources into learning more about the, the uh, long-term effects. I think workers are at the front line of this issue because we in the Great Lakes live and produce 
many of the products that we're talking about, I think we really need to think thoughtfully about how we change production. So a lot of, of course, what we see is this focus on on choices that we make as individual consumers, right, that either exacerbate or reduce the problem. But as you mentioned a bit earlier, Andrea, you see it differently. It is really important for us to think about how manufacturers are making choices about what objects they're making and how they're including it. You know, I began at the start to talk about in the last 10 years, we've seen a 50 percent increase in petrochemicals in our fibers. Well, that's a choice. That's a choice by the folks who are making our clothes. And 10 years is not a very long period of time. No, it's not. If they've made a choice in the last 10 years to increase the amount of petrochemicals in our clothes, they can also make a choice to move away from that. And we really need to hold them responsible. Often we hold it on, on consumers to make different choices. How did we get to that place where, where individuals feel responsible? I, I think it's not uh, surprising that industry might want us to be really focused on consumer choices rather than on, on the impacts they're making. I, I was just talking about the billion dollars we got in the infrastructure bill. The Alliance for the Great Lakes was one of the drivers of this, the cleanup from more decades and decades of, of industrial pollution in the Great Lakes, a billion dollars. Mm. What would happen if we invested a billion dollars in moving manufacturing away from petrochemicals and towards things that we could grow here in the Great Lakes? Mm. What about hemp? What about facts? Are these flax? some of the policy shifts that you're pushing for, Andrea? Absolutely. Absolutely. We could actually incentivize manufacturers to move away from using petrochemicals and towards more sustainable objects. And we could even um, encourage growers to grow it in more organic and uh, regenerative ways that can give back to the soil and actually make a healthy planet. You know, and Karen, as we, we talk about the individual action, right, playing a role here, I'm curious if, if if folks are able to make or sew some of their own clothing, can they make sure that the fabric or the yarn that they use is safe or free of plastics? So if people want to be working on their own clothes, first of all, it, it, fantastic. Uh, but it, you do need to look at what the actual fabric is and then also if it's been treated because there's a layer of is it actually petrochemical at its core, but often a fabric that might even be described as natural has uh, a flame retardant on it or another chemical. So you have to be really specific on is it untreated uh, as you're looking at those opportunities. Mm-hmm. But it's in- incredibly important to think about you know, reducing the production of new, uh, both through what we as individuals can do in our own purchasing, but then what we as individuals can do in this broader system as we're thinking you know, fundamentally about what are the incentives that are out there. But yeah, if you can extend the life of a fabric, that's probably a net benefit, both because you're reducing the new that could come and because the, the shedding of microfibers tends to level off a little bit mm-hmm. after a, a piece of fabric has been around for a while. I mean, just listening to the, the two of you speak, my, my next question is, why are solutions to this problem so complex, Karen? It's a global industry, actually. You know, we're talking about petrochemicals in our clothing. Um, it's multi-sector. The textile industry is actually the third largest buyer of plastics in the world. It's multi-geography. So you have just all the inherent challenges and opportunities when you have essentially a multi-jurisdictional challenge. Yeah, All that means is it's like a lot of other challenges where what do we do day to day, uh, how, what do we get engaged in, and how do we get others involved on solutions? Mm-hmm. So what can we learn, Andrea, from the, the transition to a green economy? Like what's the role of incentivization 
in making the shifts happen that we talked about? I think we really need to think about, and especially here in Illinois, you know, the Clean Energy and Jobs Act, we were a groundbreaker in linking jobs and the transition, a just transition to more sustainable energy. By the way, it's happening super fast. Factories are going up. As every time I go down to Springfield, I see more and more windmills. We were able to make that transition by subsidizing and engaging and prioritizing that just transition. Mm-hmm. I think we need to do that now when we're thinking about moving away from plastic and petrochemicals to more sustainably sourced items. How do we have a just transition for the workers? How do we have a just transition that reduces the harm on our local communities and make sure we give back in the best way possible? I think that's entirely possible. We could have a CJA 2.0. We could move in the right direction that really incentivize things thoughtfully. But we have to think, and I think the point is we, we have to think big. We have to be bold and have and be okay with going big. We went big, and it took a while for us to do that on the energy side, but now we're seeing what's happening. Um, you know, the Alliance for the Great Lakes works across the Great Lakes, not just here in Illinois. Yeah. So what's happening in Michigan and Minnesota and Ohio? It's happening with, elsewhere. It's happening everywhere, and we can do that. And we have great legislatures in those in Minnesota, Michigan, and Illinois. Yeah. We could do fantastic things. Well, Karen, how does reuse of, of clothes that are already made play a role here? So reuse is absolutely important. When you think about you know, what you as an individual have right now, you have some clothing. Um, how, do you, how do you ensure that that clothing can continue to serve you over time so that you're not adding that next purchase to this story? Or you're actually able to add a thoughtful, specific purchase that can, again, last for a while with you. So I do think that that reuse or kind of extending the life is a great way to think about what to do with what we have right now. Yeah. And then there's the question of what about that next piece of clothing? How do we make sure that it's produced in a way that's creating healthy communities and is not, in fact, going to add more challenges to the environment? Right, because you've got to keep it up at that point, right? Any design innovations that are exciting to you, Andrea? I I think reuse is actually incredibly exciting, and I'm seeing reused fabrics uh, and clothes created in beautiful ways that I I would be honored to to own. I uh, live nearby a new reuse shop where a young person is taking reused clothes um, and doing really beautiful things and creating gorgeous uh, fabric oh, nice. and, and, fab- and absolutely gorgeous new clothes that I would love to wear, which many of which I own. I also think that corporations have a role in this. You know, Patagonia has started a reuse, as is REI. They're having um, times where they're bringing folks in and intergenerationally teaching people how to do things that, you know, like my mom taught me and my brother how to fix our socks and to re uh, and to fix our clothes. Um, I'm proud to say my daughter knows how to do it better than I do. And I think there is a multi-generational opportunity right now for us to do that work together. So uh, Patagonia actually wasn't able to join us for our, our conversation today, but uh, I do want to read an excerpt from a LinkedIn post from Patagonia Incorporated President Jenna Johnson talking about the company's thinking on this issue and next steps. Uh, So it says, uh, we've been investing in microfiber research since 2015 with the goal of learning how to reduce the amount of fibers that shed from our garments and contribute to the various sources of pollution in the ocean. Through our partnership with OceanWise, we now know that washing machine conditions can significantly reduce microfiber pollution. The research shows that using gentle or low-intensity wash cycles can reduce microfiber shedding by about 70%. And we know the responsibility isn't just on consumers. For our part, Patagonia will continue to research new fibers 
textile processes, and technologies throughout a product's life cycle while also looking for solutions from beyond our company. So, I mean, she then went on to write that they're starting a partnership with Samsung, uh, which is working on designing a washing machine with a low shed setting, and uh, that cross-industry collab is is needed to address microfiber pollution. Um, what are your thoughts? I, I think this is the type of corporate leadership that's really important. Uh, it's, it's my understanding that Patagonia has also made a commitment to have no virgin petroleum fibers by 2025. That's really soon. That shows you how quickly you can make supply chain changes. I also want to note that supply chain changes are, happen all the time uh, and are adjusted by market forces. We can push them in directions and we can incentivize them to move in directions uh, that really matter. And I really encourage all of us listening uh, to understand the power we have, not only just power as consumers, but power as citizens. And folks like Patagonia and many other corporations are responding because they have a an ethical core, but also because their consumers have pushed them in this direction. They're very aware of that. Many of these corporations are doing uh, lots of um, uh, a survey research of their consumers and know the direction is moving. The reason why you're seeing this all over the media is because, not just here but everywhere, yeah. is because there's concern and, and there's uh, a need for being able to move forward. Good job, Patagonia. Let's go, everybody else. We'll leave it there. That's Andrea Densham, Senior Strategic Advisor with Alliance for the Great Lakes, and Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor. Thank you both. Thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Meha Ahmed. Hear great environmental stories, along with all the important stories from across our region, by subscribing to our podcast. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.